Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zivi. I'm the host, Zivi Owens. I am an author. My latest is blank, pub date March 1st, a novel. I'm also a podcaster, obviously, a publisher, a bookstore owner, and so much more. If you love books, you're in the right place. In fact, we call it the Ziviverse, or really, the LA Times called it the Ziviverse, and we're going with it. Go to ZiviOwens.com to learn more, and follow me on Instagram at ZiviOwens. Rachel Capelke-Dale is the author of The Fortune Seller, a novel. This episode was guest hosted by Alicia Fernandez-Miranda, author of My What If Year, which is a Zivi Books title. Rachel Capelke-Dale is the author of The Ingenue and The Ballerinas and co-author of Graduates in Wonderland. She received a BA from Brown University, where she wrote on the varsity equestrian team, an MA from the Université de Paris de Diderot, and a PhD from University College London. How did you like that accent? Right? Pretty good? She currently lives in Paris. Rachel, welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Happy New Year. We're still in early 2024 here. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to meet you and to talk with you and to be back on the pod. Well, I am extremely excited because this weekend I dove into your book, which I had the good fortune to read early, probably the best thing about this job. And I just, it was such a page turner. Like I could not, I could not stop. And I have a very bad habit of reading the ends of books before I finish. It's horrible. (laughs) My New Year's resolution should probably be to change it, but I think it's impossible. But of course, I had to I had to keep like, I was like, wait, I don't understand. I have to go back. I have to go back. I have to finish. So yeah, it had me hooked. So congratulations. 
Oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad to hear that and delighted that it uh, kept the tension going for you. Yeah, good job on that. So why don't we start with just telling listeners who aren't as lucky as I have been what The Fortune Seller is about. Absolutely. So The Fortune Seller is a book about Ivy League equestrian team in the mid-aughts, which feels so weird to say still, and young uh, tarot card reader who kind of infiltrates the team and brings a lot of tensions to the forefront. And yeah, and kind of the fallout from there, uh, figuring out who she is and why she's there and what it means to uh, the other girls on the team. So I know this is your third novel, and I also know you were already kind of, it was in the works when you were on Zibby's podcast last for your previous book. What was the inspiration for this? And, you know, what's kind of some of the backstory about how you decided to come to this story of these girls and their drama? Well, there's so much about this book that I'd always wanted to write about. You know, I rode horses myself when I was younger. I always thought that was a fascinating arena, not just to write about the animals, which I love, but to write about the class tensions within that world, uh, because it is such a strange world. And the book gets into this where you have people who can be in it, who aren't born from money usually because riding's so expensive, who can be in that world only if they put actual labor into it, Mm -hmm. you know, working as grooms, working as instructors, things like that, and then the very wealthy. So it's a really interesting kind of point of class meetings. And so I always wanted to use that for a book. The the title was actually something that came along before almost anything else in this book. And it came from uh, one of my favorite books as a kid, which was uh, the Emily of New Moon series, the Lucy Maud Montgomery series. She, the heroine Emily, uh, works for so long to be a writer. She's, uh, you know, she's a kid with literary ambitions, as many kind of Victorian heroines are. Uh, eventually, I think one of her first big successes is when she gets a title from an old piece she finds in a newspaper called something like The Seller of Dreams, uh, something very Victorian like that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, that, that had kind of stayed with me and morphed in my mind into The Fortune Seller. Uh, although when I went back and reread the book, it was totally different. I thought, the fortune, <laughs> I like the title. What would I do with that? You know, and uh, again, you know, the equestrian world had always been something that appealed to me as a place uh, to set a novel for precisely those class tensions. And I thought, oh, that could be interesting. And from there, you know, I kind of, I, I, I set out almost with like a Mad Libs of things that I want to write about. You know, I wanted to write about tarot. I'd wanted to write, you know, a little bit about astrology, wanted to write about what it's like to be in New York right after graduation, you know, without any money uh, in particular. So these things came together in various ways. Wanted to write a dog in there. I I love putting a dog in my books. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and then kind of whittling and seeing thematically what works. And, you know, I'm not sure I think so much about theme while I'm drafting, but in revisions, of course, yeah. that starts to that starts to come through. So my first drafts do tend to be kind of a hodgepodge of just things I like. <laughs> Are you a pantser or a plotter? So did you already know kind of what was going to happen? Because the story is, it really unfolds. And it's one of those great stories that when you go back after you know what's happened, in my case, midway through the book, or in other people's case, when they actually finish. You know, you you see all of these beautiful kind of Easter eggs and little clues that were dropped throughout. So was that 
Is that how you write? Do you write based on an outline or are you more of like, uh, let's see where this goes? So for a long time, I really was a pantser, but I ended up with a lot of novels, a lot of manuscripts that were just people sitting around and talking. <laughs> you know, my I, I have ADHD. I think I've mentioned that before. My brain will let me go 800 pages into a conversation I find interesting and nobody else cares about <laughs> it. So I really, you know, but, but that's also where some of the gold is. So I like to kind of have a few months to a year before I start writing, actually writing on the page where I'm just kind of wool gathering and jotting things down and the stakes don't feel as high as if I thought of it as like actual drafts. Right. But, uh, you know, but when I write in my notes app, you know, little moments or sentences or ideas for scenes, that's, you know, that's my, yeah, my wool gathering process. Mm -hmm. And then I arrange it into an outline. I have these absurdly complicated Excel spreadsheets. I love, I it. love to waste time uh, <laughs> needlessly organizing things that don't need to be that uh, carefully organized. But uh, that really helps me too with revisions because I can see what scenes are necessary to the structure of the book. I can see what scenes are no longer necessary. You know, they may have been early on, but, you know, at a certain point fall away. I can see, you know, the scenes that were in earlier drafts and things like that without having to go generalize from a manuscript. So, yeah, I do end up plotting pretty carefully in the end, but I don't come to a novel with a predetermined plot. When I do that, the the characters come out kind of, they come out very forced. You know, it, it has to, you have to kind of listen to the characters as you write and adapt from from there because it's all about what they do in any given situation. And if the situation isn't right or what they would do isn't right, then, you know, particularly with, you know, this novel where you have four girls or a novel like this, four girls from what I think are, are pretty similar backgrounds, ranging from middle class to super upper class. Yeah. Um, but I mean, they're four young women of the same generation, all relatively comfortable, plus mm -hmm. <laughs> on up, you know, of the same race, of the same education. I think, uh, you know, they, the, the, fear that I have going into that is that I don't have them differentiated enough to right. get their voices distinct, you know, and their voices really come from, you know, come out of the actions that they take. And uh, as I kind of figure out the kind of people that they are. So as that develops over drafts, sometimes scenes no longer make sense and they got to go. Are you good at doing that? Are you good at killing your darlings? <laughs> I am. And the only reason for that, again, is just I know how my brain works. And if there's something, and I know that I will write, you know, I will write a 50-page description of a horse or a dog that <laughs> nobody cares about, you know? And I'm like, well, I'm glad I know that dog. Okay, let's take that out of the, <laughs> the book and, you know, move right up. on the wall, we'll write, you know, it'll be ode, ode to the dog. Exactly. I have a lot of documents on my computer that are just those darlings for another time for another draft, you know, for a different, for a different project. Yeah. That's very good. So, I mean, you mentioned this a little bit, but you know, this book is, is about this horse community where 
you have a number of different people coming from different parts of life and different socioeconomic strata that can come together. But it also takes place in the Ivy League, in this very upper echelons, very kind of locked off place of society. And you're talking about class and privilege and how they intersect there and how difficult it can be to break in. So, you know, I mentioned I was at my, in my childhood home with my parents. You are also at your parents' house right now. So I was reading your book over the weekend and then I, we were playing a lot of board games, right? So we we're playing the game of life with my children, which I don't know if you've played that game oh, yeah. ever or like in the last however many years, but you know, you, you start the way the game works now is that you get a salary card at the beginning. And if you start with a small salary, your chances of digging yourself out of that financial hole by the end of the game are like almost impossible, which is kind of similar to life. And I pulled out this quote that (laughs) Rosie says earlier in the book. So early in the book, Rosie is the, the main character. She says, the idea that all of life was open to you, not just a little sliver of it, that all you had to do was go around pointing at things, experiences, people saying, mine, 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 the ability to choose. That was my idea of heaven. And so I was I was thinking about all of these things as I'm playing the game of life and losing miserably <laughs> oh, against my children and my extremely competitive son who's like hiding his money under the bed so no one can see how much he has. But I I went to Harvard for my undergrad. I graduated in 2004. I you know a lot of these experiences are very relatable for me, believable. I met people like Cress, another main character in the book, and I saw that you also went to an Ivy. You went to Brown. So did you? You know, did you know people like this when you came into this world? Is this is that part of the book also based on experiences that you had kind of coming into the Ivy League from wherever you were coming from? Yeah, so I it's a great question. I I, I should say that nothing in the book actually happened to me. You know, it's uh, <laughs> the, the vibes the, the vibes did, but nothing. You know, none of the murders or anything. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, I you know I grew up uh, with uh, my parents are both professors uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, when I was leaving for Brown, I'll never forget. You know, my father said to me, "You know, you're going to encounter people from backgrounds that you've never encountered before." You know, at Brown, and I thought, "Oh my god!" You know, what kind of great Gatsby talk is this? You know, this is so. <laughs> But then you get there and yeah, you know, it would have been, you know, expected that I would, you know, and again, like I was, we were, I was very comfortable as a child. Mm-hmm. I like my, my background was fairly comfortable, middle class and, uh, you know, but it was expected that I would work a job for spending money, you know, and the, that, you know, when I graduated, this is, uh, so I graduated 07. So still no, I wasn't covered under my parents' health insurance. Mm-hmm. So my but, you know, my mom was like, you're getting a job because, you, you know, health insurance is what, a grand a month? And, you know, that's, you know, that's just what you do. But at the same time, you know, a lot of the people that I knew, you know, were on this spectrum that was even more privileged than, you know, than the background that I had come from where, you know, they were going, oh, well, my, you know, my, my parents say my job is to be a student. I'm going, well, must be nice. Or, you know, or, you know, buying hundred dollar bottles of wine at, at dinner and this kind of thing. And it's, you know, it's delightful to be around, of course, but it really was different from anything that I'd ever experienced, you know, and then at the same time, you know, there were kids in my class who were coming out with huge financial Mm. aid packages, student loans, things, you know, just this place where 
I think especially growing up in kind of 90s middle class America, middle class middle America, especially I had thought, you know, well, it, we live in a meritocracy, you know, and it's yeah. <laughs> I, I really, really believed that to the point where I hadn't questioned it. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're a. Uh, you know, you're surrounded by these levels of wealth, you know, that other 18 year olds have access to. You're going, wait a minute, none of us has done anything to deserve any of this. Yes. You know, whether it's being, you know, born with the privilege to get there or the intelligence to get there or the combination or the work ethic to get there. But again, see, even now I'm going, oh, the the work ethic to get there is though just work ethic can get you to an ivy, whereas really it's it's systems. So I think, yeah, I think the the ivies have always interested me mm-hmm. as institutions, as this kind of byword for privilege, but also this byword for, oh, you can get there if you work really hard. Yeah. And it it takes that certainly, but in most cases, uh, if you're not Cressida Tate from the yeah. book, <laughs> but it also takes a lot of luck. And I think that's the kind of X factor. And I think you, you must get this with Harvard. I mean, especially because, you know, I, I live in France. I went to Brown. But people kind of know what it is, but they don't really. Whereas mm-hmm. Harvard all over the world, you know, is, you know, is kind of owning it after graduation is a strange thing. Because after graduation, I was in New York and people go, oh, you went to Brown. Well, why are you doing this job? Because <laughs> it's a job, because it's yeah. work. You yeah. Know? The health insurance, you know, but the, you know, you go, oh, well, I I just remember being really uncomfortable with people's judgments of that, you know, and going, oh, well, you you must be so smart. And you're going, well, no, it's, it's, it's luck. And it's even just this, this, uh, which, which is probably a very middle-class trait too. You know, again, the <laughs> credit uh, in the book is not somebody who's going, oh, I went to, you know, she, I went to Yale, but I'm, I'm not that smart. <laughs> That's so funny. I'm sure she's not. My my son, who's 12, will sometimes like, like he, you know, he now knows what Harvard is because he sees it on TV and in shows and stuff like that. And he's like, just say to me all the time, like, mom, I can't believe you were smart enough to go to Harvard. <laughs> I'm like, first of all, ouch. Second of all, yes, I was. But third of all, you know, you do need to understand. And I think when you, I think one of the great benefits actually of my experience there was being able to see a lot of the underlying machinations in the system of how that world works in a way that you never could have explained to me before I got there because you start to see, you know, you you see how intergener, you know, inherited privilege and generational privilege, how it manifests itself among your peers and among friends. And there are lots of ways to take advantage of that. My thing was always like with boys, like you never wanted to tell boys after college that you went to Harvard because you didn't want them to think you were too Smart. It's really, I went to college in Boston. It took me me a little while to own that properly, but now I'm so, I'm so far out. Nobody cares where I went to college anymore. It's like, I'm I'm, I'm very far away. I'm very aged. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, so you, you mentioned you live in Paris. What brought you there? Tell me about your like fabulous expat life where you like wear stripes and eat baguettes and <laughs> wear those like fruit fruit outfits like Emily in Paris. I bet, I bet, you know, are you just walking around in super high heels all day long? Tell me. <laughs> I have not worn heels since the pandemic, but I should love say. It. I love that for you. I love it. But yeah, I, I, so I studied abroad in Paris and then I did my master's there because I realized when I was studying abroad that, well, our parents and our, you know, student loans were paying 40 grand a year or whatever it was at the time. Uh, the French students who were being, being exchanged were paying about 300 in tuition, which included health insurance. Ooh. So uh, as soon as I had the chance after college, I worked in New York for a while. Then I decided to go do my master's in France for, you know, again, like 300 bucks a year, health insurance included. And then I, yeah, I got kind of caught up in that in that system and uh, in the, the academia of it all again. I ended up doing my PhD. I did that in London because my written French isn't strong enough to do, you know, a, a doctorate in mm. And after that, I, I published my first book with Jess Pan uh, during my doctorate and realized that that was the area I wanted my life to go, you know, but I couldn't, I couldn't stop the, I couldn't, couldn't give up the doctorate. I had to finish it, <laughs> you know, it already is some cost fallacy, yeah. So I finished the doctorate in cinema studies and, uh, but then I thought, well, if I'm just going to write, I could be living anywhere. And I love London, but in terms of quality of life, in terms of, you know, what feels like my city, you know, Paris was where I wanted to be. So I still had a lot of friends there, moved back to France. It's been, yeah, since 2018 is when I moved back. So yeah, it's been wonderful. It is a great country to live in. I mean, there are the glamorous aspects. It's very funny. I was teaching a writing class this semester and of exchange students from the United States. And Mm. uh, a lot of them in their early essays were writing about Emily in Paris and kind of their experiential (laughs) essays. And I was like, okay, just wait, you know, see, see what you think. Cause Uh, you know, the rats on the subway are not necessarily uh, featured in that show. Yeah, cut scenes. But, Those are cutscenes. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. Bloopers. <laughs> but uh, no, it's it's uh, it's a wonderful place to to live, to to work, to write. Of course, I love it. It's on my list. So I'm in Scotland now, and I have been an expat. Similar experience. Studied abroad in the UK. Went back for my master's. Moved back to live in 2008. And something that's been interesting for me is writing about America and Americans and in my American voice that exists in my head, but from abroad. I mean, have you had that experience kind of writing? Your book is very much set in the New Haven in New York, 2005, 2006. 
you know, do you think that you have a different perspective of that sitting in Paris working on this versus if you were living full time in the U.S.? It's really hard to I, it's it's hard to say you know it's hard to imagine you know alternate mm. world alternate universe Rachel but probably it's it's tricky because of course I've also gotten older mm-hmm. and we've all lived through you know the late 2010s we've we all lived through a pandemic since then so you know when I was writing this and trying to get back into the mindset of college you know that I had had in college you know, of, you know, which I, I loved college, <laughs> despite everything I've mm-hmm. said here. I, it was really <laughs> a wonderful time. It was incredible experiences. It's afterwards that, again, the, the, the structures that allowed me to be there, that allowed uh, my friends to be there, that allowed the people I knew to be there kind of became a lot more evident. So I really think it's time more than distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in in some ways, uh, also, I mean, living in a country with a fairly progressive government, uh, you know, Macron is not uh, <laughs> progressive in the European sense, but right. for Americans, yes. uh, he's <laughs> like Bernie Sanders. So. Exactly. He's off the charts. <laughs> yeah. um, has, especially in contrast with uh, kind of American government of, you know, a, a few years ago, got to see very different like pandemic responses, very different kind of structural things that really ended up affecting like my daily life, certainly in the daily life of, I think, a lot of people in France. So, uh, they, you know, so there is something to be said of, you know, for, for that kind of simultaneous alternate universe yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where you, where you do get that distance. But, um, in terms of, yeah, in terms of, uh, the distance, I don't know. I think there certainly is something to be said for, you know, the, for living under different institutions and trying to understand uh, the way that they function. Well, yeah, it gives you a different perspective, doesn't it? You know, you kind of see the assumptions of that things are all like this everywhere. And then you go somewhere else and you're like, oh, maybe things can be different somewhere else. And what are the reasons why things are the way they are? I just, I think it's really fascinating. And even the culture at those like top tier universities in France, in the UK, and oh. in the US, they're very different. They're very, very different in positive and negative ways. So, you know, and in, in France, you know, the tuition is so much lower, as I've said, yeah. that, you know, and there are, there aren't these X factors in admission, like extracurriculars and, you know, things that like, you know, if you're working a job in high school, it can be so much more difficult to, because you're not also a theater star or, you right. know, a, Rory Gilmore, you know, newspaper reporter, like deep dive there. But, you know, that those separate podcasts will need to record, Rachel. (laughs) If you're a Gilmore Girls fan, we could go, we could go Uh, down a hole. We could go down a whole uh, rabbit hole. (laughs) Please, I'm in. But, you know, but, but uh, without those X factors, you know, and they say, oh, it's, it's completely a meritocracy, you know, and then you talk to people who've been through this system and they go, even then, it's Mm -hmm. not really because the more elite high schools, the more exclusive high schools feed into the, the, systems, you know, there are, you know, coded ways of writing that, you know, show, you know, show your socioeconomic background and things like that. So, you know, so it's, I think as a kind of a progressive American, it's so easy for me to be like, oh, France is amazing. And France is going, we're we're better, but we still have problems. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
It's so fascinating. Now, tell me what you're working on now. Give us a sneak peek. I'm working on two projects at the moment. First time I've done kind of a simultaneous pairing. The first is a nonfiction project about um, this kind of medical mystery uh, tour I was on for the past decade and uh, figuring out some strange symptoms uh, in the UK, the US and France across the three systems. And that can be very heavy to write. So I need to kind of dip in and out at the same time. I'm working on a project, uh, another one set in France, like my first novel, but this one is about the French resistance and generational trauma, but uh, set in, again, the early 2000s, uh, which is apparently I, I just want to regress to. <laughs> Look, it was, it was a simpler time. It was a simpler time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so funny to me now. Like, yeah, my students having this like a uh, millennial, you know, uh, envy. And I'm like, it was not that great, you guys. <laughs> it was interesting, but we had our issues. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, don't you, aren't you all wearing the same clothes now? Can't you see what this was all about? <laughs> Those chokers were very uncomfortable. Oh my God. I wore low rise jeans for the first time in about 20 years. And it was like, these are terrible. <laughs> oh my God. It makes me shudder to think about putting on a pair of low rise jeans right now. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh, Rachel, it's been so great to catch up with you. Let's finish this off with our classic question. I know you've already done this and you've already given your writerly advice. So what new writerly advice do you have for the listeners today? Oh gosh. Uh, it could be old. You could repeat the same thing. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't remember what I, I said. Just any advice. If it's the same thing you said last time, then we're just going to say it's that good that you, it's really bears repeating. <laughs> well, it, it's going to take a really passionate listener to uh, compare contrast. Uh, but I know all of, uh, all of the mom's audience is passionate, which is great. I think the biggest thing that I would say is just to dive into, you know, reading and writing the kind of stuff that you want to read and write as much as you possibly can. Read so widely within your genre, outside of your genre, you know, find the things that you love, try reading things that you would never think that you'd like, you know, a dip in and out of different authors, go, you know, read everything one author has ever written, read, go into the acknowledgments, read everything she, all the authors she recommends, uh, mm -hmm. you know, keep doing that and play around. I think a lot of people don't necessarily know, you know, what they want to do in terms of genre, in terms of story until you write a lot, you play a lot and you throw a lot out. <laughs> so that's my advice is just I love to it. get in there as much as I can. Yeah, I love it. Beautiful. Well, Rachel, The Fortune Seller is out now. Everybody needs to go and read it. Rachel, thank you again for being on my Moms don't have time to read books. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.